After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that uh, you would move upon our hearts today by the power of your word, that I would... I would get out of the way, uh, and that our hearts and minds would hear what the Spirit is speaking to the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, this has been a kind of a wild chapter, chapter five. Uh, Kind of spoke about this in the past weeks, but this has all been stories. Luke is, is kind of bombarding us with stories of Jesus calling people out of their stuff, And it's all kinds of stuff. Some of it is self-imposed stuff, like this tax collector. Others uh, are uh, things that are outside of people's control, like sickness. But he is meeting lepers. He is meeting the demonized. He's meeting uh, fishermen uh, in the middle of their jobs. He's meeting uh, tax collectors. He's meeting people where they're at. And we kind of spoke about this at length over the last couple uh, weeks. Jesus, or uh, you know, God doesn't wait for you to fix yourself up. He doesn't wait for you to kind of put a polished veneer on your life in order for him to take notice of you. He notices you. He comes after people where they're at, what, with whatever they're doing. He reaches out to the one. He leaves, I love that parable in the song that we sing, he leaves the 99 for that one stray. He finds you where where you're at, and he goes after you. He doesn't even wait for your permission, it doesn't seem like. God loves people. He loves people even that are not yet looking for him. He just pursues. He's what uh, the reformer Martin Luther termed the hound of heaven. He's the hound of heaven that pursues sinners, pursues those who are broken, and he meets them where they're at. The leper could not lift a finger to save himself. Uh, The demonized person could not fix the turmoil, the bondage that that person was was under. Uh, And the tax collector is another case in point. Jesus comes after you. God meets you where you're at. And this has kind of been the story uh, of, of the last two or three weeks. But it doesn't stop there. With the tax collector, we kind of we kind of add to the story. It's still the same thing. God meets you where you're at. There's just another angle that's added. God meets you where you're at, but he doesn't leave you where you are. He'll find you at the tax booth, but he won't leave you in the tax booth. He'll find you covered in leprosy, but he won't leave you covered in leprosy. He'll find you helpless, but he won't leave you helpless. He'll meet you where you're at, but he won't leave you where you are. Can I get an amen? Amen. (laughs) After this, I love verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. Tax collectors in first century uh, Judaism were the most hated people in the world, right? And it was for a couple of reasons. One, uh, they were commissioned by Rome to secure the taxes of whatever precinct that they belonged to. Uh, but with, armed with all of the authority and power of Rome, 
they often would cut corners and take just a little bit more for themselves. Uh, and they would often get really wealthy off of the people. They would, we, they would tax for Rome, but they would also tax a little extra for themselves. They would line them po- their pockets. It was very common for tax collectors to be very rich, but they were rich for unjust reasons. They were rich off the people, and there was nothing that the people could do. But it made it even more exacerbated by the fact that tax collectors were often Jews that were taxing their own people at the behest of Rome. So they were getting rich off their own people playing for the other side. So they they weren't just greedy. They weren't just unjust. They were traitors to their own people. It was for that reason that tax collectors were at the bottom of the food chain in ancient Israel. The most hated people on the planet, most hated people in society, they were worse even than the Romans. They were Jewish people selling their own countrymen out for Rome in order to make a buck. The scum of the earth. And it open, this passage opens with Luke telling us that, that this, this guy Levi was still in the middle of doing this thing. It's not like he had a change of heart. It's not like he was like, I'm going to go and pursue some religion today. I'm going to try to better my life. He was sitting at the tax booth. That's where Jesus often shows up. Isn't it, isn't it true? He comes to the tax booth where you're stuck in life. Now, for this guy, it might have been a tax booth, but for us, it just, this just symbolizes the, the ways that we are stuck in our old ways of thinking, the places in life where we find that we're stuck, and this could be anything. For the tax collector, it's, I have assembled a means of control over my life. Uh, it's coated with greed and uh, security. I have isolated people, I take advantage of them, I am in control. That was his tax booth, a literal one and a figurative one. What's the tax booth for you? I love the testimony that we posted on social media this past week of a, a dear brother that got baptized. He, uh, to put it in his words, he said, I, got, I reached a point of substance abuse where I could not do anything about it myself. My only option was Jesus. I reached a spot in my life where I couldn't even, I couldn't even uh, help myself. If Jesus didn't act and intervene on my behalf, I'm, I was doomed. Now for him, it was substance abuse, and Jesus saves. For others, it might be that. It might be something more subtle. It might be anger. It might be rage. It might be workaholism. It might be identity issues. Uh, the, the range of things that we find ourselves stuck in is limitless. But that's our tax booth. When Jesus found Levi, he was sitting at a tax booth. He's still there, stuck. Where are you stuck? What is your tax booth? What is that thing in your life where you're like, if I keep doing this, I'm going to ruin myself and everyone around me. But I can't fix it. It often is in this place of self-awareness that we tend to hear the invitation of Jesus the loudest. In other words, it's the Pharisees that we're going to see who are fine. I'm fine. That tend to not hear the words of Jesus very clearly. It's, it's the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the demon-possessed and the lepers who have reached a point in their life that is so low that the words of Jesus scream in their heart like a siren. This is good news. God meets you where you're at, but he doesn't leave you where you are. In the midst of Levi's tax booth, his greed, 
his self-preservation, his love of control, his isolation of other people in his life, the invitation of Jesus screams like a siren. Verse 27, and he said to him, follow me. Those two words are perhaps the most poignant and significant words in all of the Gospel of Luke, in my opinion. The invitation of Jesus to people who don't deserve it and can't lift a finger to save themselves. Come with me. Follow me. You notice Jesus isn't saying, hey, clean up your act, bro. You better fold that tax table. You know, you better put that aside. Give your money back to the people you've stolen it from. Uh, Shave your beard, bro. You know, like clean your act up. And then, maybe, we can do some things together. No, follow me. You are just the type of person I can bring to a place of completion. You're just the type of person that I can do something with. Just follow me. Come with me. This is the call of Christianity. This is the basic call of of Christianity. The basic call of Christianity is not just a a sinner's prayer. For those of you that might be familiar with the term, uh, I went to a, a... Uh, an outdoor uh, outreach or an event, and the pastor was up there, and he led me in a four-point prayer, and that was it. That's great, but that is not the thing. Nor is it, uh, I come to church. I go to church at least five times a year, or whatever it is, you know? Once a month, four times a month, I go all the time. That neither is the, the quintessential call of Christianity, Nor is it I do a list of good things or I have memorized all of these doctrines or I know the right answers to all of the college questions of of the Bible. Those might all be good things, but that is not the core of Christianity. Nor is the core of Christianity uh, even the outward sign of uh, the outward act of baptism which we, we celebrated on Easter. It's a good thing, but it's not the thing. It's pointing to the thing. The thing, the core of Christianity is these two words that Jesus issues to anybody who will listen. Come with me. Follow me. I don't care what you do. I don't care where you've been. Let's just go for a ride. I'm Jesus. I know things about life. And if you follow me, I'll change your life. Follow me. The best two words that a tax collector could ever hear. And to understand it, we have to understand a little bit about what discipleship would have meant in those days. Uh, we might, we don't, we don't really use the word discipleship in like day-to-day language. I don't think we do. Like your, your job, you're like, boss, disciple me. You know? But we do use familiar words that are associated with discipleship. We might use apprenticeship or to be apprenticed or mentored. It's a similar type of idea. In other words, we're not talking about memorizing some information or, or going down a checklist. We're talking about an apprenticeship to Jesus. Uh, in those days, when Jesus said, follow me, he wasn't just saying, hey, come with me to the grocery store. I've got a list of errands to do. He wasn't just saying, hey, come with me across the street. He was, he was using rabbinic language to call them into his way of life. The rabbis of Jesus' day, Jesus was a rabbi, would have, would have spoken those two words, follow me. Disciples would have asked rabbis if they could follow them. 
and it was a very loaded term. It, uh, it was used to denote a sense of apprenticeship to another person. In other words, there were a bunch of rabbis floating around at that time doing their thing, uh, speaking and teaching and living a certain way, and people that admired them would look at each one of them and say, like, I like that guy's way of life. I like his teaching. The, the things that he says, that makes the most sense of life as, as I know it, I think. I want to follow that person, apprenticeship, discipleship. And when a rabbi would say, follow me, to a young person, that person knew exactly what that meant. It didn't mean, I'm going to meet you for coffee on Monday mornings, or I'm going to go to the synagogue or a church on Sunday mornings. All of those things are good. It meant my life has been upended. It it meant I am dedicating every breathing moment of my life to learning this person. Uh, when I was younger, one of my first jobs after 7-Eleven was plumbing. My dad is a plumbing uh, contractor. And one day, I think I was 16, I started working with him. Now, I'm a learner, so I was like, I gotta, I gotta impress my dad. I'm gonna learn everything I can about plumbing construction. And the only way that I knew to do that was to read. <clears throat> and I saw a big old binder of plumbing texts and specs on my dad's shelf. And I overheard one day that he was saying, you have to know all of this in order to get your license uh, as a plumbing contractor. So I, I got the book, and I was like, I'm going to read all of this stuff, and then I will know plumbing. And so I did. I didn't know what I was reading. I didn't know quite where I was going, but I just started memorizing random stuff. Acronyms, like pipe acronyms, ABS pipe, acrylontyl butadiene styrene. Uh, PVC pipe, polyvinyl chloride. I, I started memorizing where the hottest plumbing shops were in town. I started memorizing what piping uh, certain plumbers use. Like, oh, galvanized pipe, that was so 2008. I'm going to start using this corrugated stuff with the yellow binding. That's what the, that's what the hot plumbers really use. This is great. I started memorizing all of this information. But it didn't really work once I started doing the job. Case in point, my dad left me at this three-story house one day, and it was an easy job. He said, I want you to cut into this pipe, and I want you to install this fixture. I'll be back in an hour. Got it? Easy job. Anybody could do it. Yeah, Dad, I got it. Polyvinyl chloride. Done. He leaves. I cut into the pipe, and instantly, about three stories worth of standing water started shooting out that half-inch pipe straight into my chest and all over this finished floor. I freak out. And how many of you know that in that moment, none of the information that I had memorized at that time was about to do me any good? It didn't matter how many times I yelled at the top of my lungs all of the acronyms I knew in my head. Acrylontyl, butyrene, styrene, polyvinyl chloride. That water was still coming out. I didn't have the knowledge or the experience to fix this situation. And so I plugged the pipe with my thumb just so hard. My thumb was bleeding. And I was sitting on the ground in this bathroom trying to hold up all of this water, freaking out. And you know what I did? I called my dad. I called him with one hand, with one thumb in that pipe. And I called my dad. He shows up. He takes a look into the bathroom. And he kind of grins and he laughs a little bit. And then he turns and walks away. And then... He turns out, he does a, a number of things. He turns off the water on the outside of the house. He cuts into a pipe on the outside of the house, drains the whole building, comes in, tells me everything that I did wrong, how I did it right, and then we went out for some burritos right afterwards, forgot everything. I put away the book, 
and just started spending time with my dad. And here's what an apprenticeship looked like with me and my dad. I started watching him. I started doing the things that he did. Uh, he would give me opportunities to do certain things on the job. I would fail miserably. He would tell me what I could have done better, and then I would have an opportunity to do it again. He would coach me. I would do it well, and he would affirm me, and then he would give me another more challenging opportunity as I started to grow better and better at the task at hand. Now, that's not all we did. We didn't just work. We went to lunch together. These were 10 to 16-hour days. We'd eat lunch together, and we'd laugh, and we'd cry, and we'd yell at each other, and occasionally he'd punch me, and we'd do all sorts of things like that, and I'd learn the hard way. And it was through hours, literally hours, I probably in that season spent most of my waking moments with my dad that I learned how to do the job. But I didn't just learn the job, I learned my dad. Those were some of the most formative years in my life as a son, where I got close to my dad. He became one of my closest friends not because I sat down and read a book that said, you need to be close friends with your dad. It's because I spent so much time with him in all of the yelling and screaming and drama of the job. It was there that I apprenticed my dad. This is the idea that Jesus and every rabbi in the first century would have had in mind when they called people to follow them. They weren't just saying, I want you to memorize some teachings I want you to listen to some sermons. I want you to go to church. I want you to get this checklist down. He was literally inviting people to give up their way of doing things in order to learn how to do things from another person, day in and day out, apprenticing Jesus Christ. This is the call. This is Christianity. And Levi must have seen something in Jesus that was compelling enough because in verse 28 it says he left everything and he rose and he followed him. You know what I love about the story? So far we've seen Jesus heal, we've seen Jesus cast out demons, we've seen him forgive sins, but at this story, at this point in the chapter, we see it's not just an invitation to be healed. It's not just an invitation to be forgiven. It's not just an invitation to be fixed and shoved in the corner where you won't break anything. It's an invitation for you to come out of hiding and to join another person in his way of life, to take his life as your own life. That's why Jesus, at the end of this passage in verse uh, 32, would refer to this as repentance. He'd call this entire response that Levi had repentance, where he says uh, at the very end, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Levi is repenting. Now, some of you are hearing that word. You're cringing inside. Repenting. Repent. Perhaps for some of you, it brings up all of these angry, judgmental connotations. Maybe you've seen people on the street corner that were telling you to repent, waving signs and yelling at you for all of the things that you've done wrong. Maybe you've seen that on TV. Maybe you've experienced that from people in a church. Maybe you've done that to people. Maybe repentance for you means nothing more than just sin management. I'm doing something wrong. I need to not do that anymore. And there's a list of about 500 of those things, so it's going to be a very busy Christian life for me. Repentance. Maybe repentance for you is just very dreary and loaded down and oppressive because you have been spending your entire spiritual life trying to change your behavior 
And that is the depth of Christianity for you, is changing the things that I do. That's the, the plumb depth of all that you know about God. No wonder repentance is such a bad word to people. It should be a lively and engaging word to us because it means quite a bit more than just behavior management or modification. When Jesus says repentance, or when Luke quotes Jesus saying repentance, he's using a Greek word that li- means literally to change your mind, metanoia, where we get the word metamorphosis. This is more than just behavior modification. It means literally to change your mind, to change the way that you're thinking. Whenever you see the word repentance, you are seeing somebody talking about the way that you are thinking, not just behavior. That stuff is good, and it needs to change sometimes, but it starts far earlier than that in the place of the heart and in the mind. It starts in the battlefield of the mind. That's where God engages people. Before he engages them in the body, he engages them in the mind and in the heart. Jesus is a God who transforms hearts that he might transform everything else that comes from the heart. I love the verse in Proverbs that says, uh, to guard your heart with all diligence for out of it, flow the issues of life, or, liter- or, or another way of, of phrasing it, out of the heart is what animates the rest of you. That's where you get your behaviors and your decision making and the things that you think and your patterns of thought. God wants to change you on the inside. Repentance, a changing of your mind. Now this is not simply, I'm doing this bad and I need to do something better. It starts even deeper. I don't want to do that anymore. You see the difference? See how much more compelling that would be? Beyond just behavior modification, I, I, I know I'm not supposed to do this. I'm going to do this instead. To swap that out with, I, I, am, I, I, I am living for something less than what I've been created for. I am living below my divine potential, that which the image of God imprinted of me commands and allows. I am ripping myself off from eternal life. You see how much more compelling true repentance would be? But for a change of mind to happen, you have to have a better option. You have to be compelled by a better way of life. Because if you're not, All that you're left with is behavioral modification. Well, I guess I should do something better. I want to read you this uh, letter by a guy by the name of John. It goes, my dearest Susan, sweetie of my heart, I've been so desolate ever since I broke off our engagement, simply devastated. Won't you please consider coming back to me? You hold a place in my heart no other woman can fill. And I could never marry another woman quite like you. I need you so much. Won't you forgive me and let us make a new beginning? I love you so. Yours always and truly, John. P.S. Congratulations on you winning the state lottery. Something happened to this guy that compelled him to change his mind. It was not the right reason to change his mind, but it was compelling enough to make him change his mind. We need something that is compelling enough to change our minds from the tax booths we've been living in. Because if we don't have it, we'll stay in the tax booth. Do you understand? We need a panoramic view of what life could be. 
And when Jesus steps into this guy's business and says, follow me, Levi had all the compelling reasons he would ever need. He saw in this guy something that was better than his tax booth. In verse 29, it says that Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. In other words, Levi follows him and instantly throws a party for Jesus, invites all of his friends, who at that time were only tax collectors because nobody else wanted to hang out with a tax collector except another tax collector. So it's a bunch of tax collectors. It's a bunch of treasonous, renegade, hated scum of the earth in a living room eating dinner with Jesus. Luke, the gospel of Luke is a book of food. It has been said that this is the gospel of of meals and eating. And if you were to track scenes with Jesus, you will see that he is always either on the way to a meal, currently at a meal, or leaving a meal. He's always eating. Luke chapter 7 tells us that the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Jesus loved to eat, but it wasn't because he was constantly starving (laughs) It wasn't because he was constantly dieting and just grumbling and complaining, just wanting that extra shawarma. It was because he used meals to transform people's lives. In the Middle East, especially in the first century, a meal was the most intimate act of fellowship that you could invite someone into. This was more than just sharing a hot dog at Costco with your buddy. This was opening up your entire life in vulnerability to that person. By eating, by opening up your home and inviting someone, this is a huge uh, uh, culture of hospitality in that day, by inviting someone into your home and, and sharing a meal with them, you are essentially declaring that person to be your friend. You are accepting them. You are saying to that person, I love you and I accept you. You are my friend. What were the types of people that Jesus ate with? Tax collectors prostitutes, lepers, poor people, those who could not pay him back with a meal of their own. Those were the people that Jesus ate with. Now, he would, he would eat with Pharisees too, but those didn't always go over very well because Pharisees could not understand why Jesus would eat with people who weren't Pharisees. Look at verse 30. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You know why they're saying this? We have to get this, because unless we have something compelling enough to change our mind, we will resort to sin management. What are the motives behind sin management and behavior modification? Maybe guilt? Well, I feel bad. I need to make the feeling of badness go away, so I'll do something good. Uh, Or appearance? I want people to see me and see that I have my life together, that I'm a really spiritual, good person, so I won't do said thing. Uh, Setting an example, that's actually a pretty good reason. Uh, My kids are now at the age where they can see me, so I'm going to stop doing these 10 things that I used to do so they don't do it when they're old enough. Some of those are good reasons. Some of them are not as good, but those are not compelling enough. In that moment, when you're stuck in a tax booth of addiction, of anger and rage, of selfishness, when you hit that point in your job where you have an opportunity to be unethical, to stick someone in the back, to skim a little bit off the top, to go a little bit outside of the lines, 
when you cannot control your own selfishness and acts of self-preservation, when you slip back into those habits, you are going to need something more compelling than guilt. Else you will say, like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, the very thing that I love, I don't do. It's the thing that I hate that I do. Why can't I do the thing that is right? Because there's a battle going on inside me. And in that battle, I'm going to need something more than just the motive of setting a right example. The Pharisees were compelled by sin management. We do the right thing at the right time. We look good to other people, and we probably look good to God. In other words, there's a lack of self-awareness in the, in the Pharisees. We're fine. We have fixed ourselves. We have changed ourselves. We're good. That's why being with sinners made no sense to them. Why would Jesus hang out with people who do not have their lives together? Because Jesus loves to party with people who don't have their lives together. And he meets people right where they're at, but he will not leave you where you are. He calls a sinner out of the tax booth, out of the addictions, out of the control, out of the self-preservation, out of their selfishness, out of the hate, out of the bitterness, out of the resentment, into a life that he has planned and opened to them. Hence, Jesus come back to the Pharisees in verse 31 and 32. Jesus answered them saying, those who are well have no need of a physician. It's those who are sick that need a doctor. That's why I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, he's not affirming them. He's not saying, you don't need me. You're good. He's jabbing them. Jesus would actually say in, I think it's the Gospel of Matthew, he would call them whitewashed walls. You look good on the outside. You're dirty on the inside. And you, with all of your rules and all of your processes, make it so difficult for other people to get into the kingdom of heaven. And the ironic thing is, you're not even in the kingdom of heaven. The prophet Isaiah would say, even our righteous deeds, even the best we have to offer to God, are like filthy rags. He is that holy and that perfect and that good. We can't behave well enough to get on his good side. We must get into his good side as an act of sheer grace. That's why Jesus comes into our mess. He doesn't need us to polish ourselves off. He doesn't need us to clean ourselves up. He is a gracious God that steps into the mess of the human condition and says, I want you, follow me. I'm gonna step into your life so that you can step into my life. Free of charge, that's why I, I love that, that verse in Romans where Paul says that God draws us to repentance by his kindness. Some of us think that there's a God out there who, who beats us over the head to repent, but it's not true. It's his kindness that draws us to change our minds. It's seeing a God who loves us so much that he came to this earth, died on the cross, rose from the dead to give us new life, that we would say, oh, I was doing this, but that's not, that's not as good as this. I'm changing my mind. I'm gonna follow Jesus. It's God's kindness that changes people's mind. And Jesus came. You know, he's being ironic here. They're not righteous, at least not in his sight, by his standards. He's kind of joshing them a little bit. He's poking at their self-deception, and he's saying, I came for people who are ready to change their mind. And it tends to be people who are desperate enough to see their helplessness 
who are best postured to change their mind? How many of you are sick and tired of doing the same thing over and over and over again? The gospel is the most beautiful among people who are the most tired. The gospel is that much more satisfying among people who are too broken to move forward. And there are at least two equal but opposite ways that we can falter in this. Looking at Levi and looking at the Pharisees. One is to say, uh, like Levi in that first verse, I don't need to change. He didn't say this, but he's sitting at the tax booth. Jesus had to come after him. We could fall on one end of the spectrum by saying, I don't need to change. I'm fine. I like my tax booth. I make a lot of money. I have a lot of stuff. People respect me. I have perks in life. I'm a cutthroat who ruins everybody's life and my soul is slowly being sucked dry, but whatever. I'm young. The other end of the spectrum is, yeah, change is necessary, but I can change myself, as in the Pharisees. I don't need to change. I'm fine. Or I can change myself. I want to blow through those petty, non-compelling reasons to move forward with a different invitation. The same one that Jesus gave to Levi, he gives to you and to I. Follow me. What he would say to Levi here in Luke chapter 5, he would say to you and I and anyone who would ever listen in Matthew chapter 11, listen to this. Come to me, all you who are uh, labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When a rabbi, uh, or excuse me, when a student decided to chase after or to follow a rabbi, it was because they admired their way of viewing life, their worldview. Uh, this is often referred to as a yoke in Middle Eastern ancient culture. A yoke, uh, that, that idea came from a little wooden bar that would sit on top of oxen, usually two oxen paired together, plowing a field. There would be a, what was called a yoke, a bar of wood, placed on both of their necks to keep them together as they walked parallel with one another. The rabbis would pick up on that language and use the word yoke to refer to their teaching. This is my understanding of what God has said and how it applies to life in general. In other words, this is my lens for how life is supposed to be. And there are all, t- all kinds of uh, different rabbis with different yokes. There was Rabbi Shimei and Rabbi Hillel, and they all had their different ways of viewing life and saying, if you follow me, and if you learn this yoke, if you learn this way of life, you're going you're gonna, to uh, experience eternal life uh, with God. Some of them were lenient. Some of them were absolutely burdensome. Some of them were impossible, as we see in the Pharisees' lifestyle. And Jesus came along, and he says in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You see what he's saying here? Hey, do life with me. Listen to what I say. Do the things that I do. Make mistakes and I'll coach you. And we'll have dinner together and we'll eat meals and we'll laugh about things. And I'll teach you how to live the life that was destined for you to live. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you live the life that I have planned out for you, it doesn't mean you won't have suffering. It doesn't mean that you won't have challenges in life. But you will find rest for your souls.
over and above every yoke in the human sphere, Jesus says, mine is better. Over and above all the other places that we learn how to do life. Over and, all, uh, over and above uh, the, the, the yoke of the American dream. Over and above the yoke of the New York Times. Over and above the yoke of Fox and Friends. Over and above the yoke of MSNBC. Over and above the yoke of your tax booth. All of the different ways and lenses that the world says, this is how you're supposed to live. This is the best way to live your life. Over and above what your friends tell you your life is supposed to look like. Over and above what your family has dictated your life is supposed to look like. Over and above what you have self-imposed upon yourself. I need to be this and that in order to be this. Over and above all yokes, over and above all tax booths, Jesus rises to this top and says, I rose from the dead. Now, if you want rest for your souls, if you want life in your life, come take a walk with me. You don't have to have it all together. I'm going to meet you where you're at, but I'm not going to leave you where you are. You walk with me, and I will teach you resurrection life. It starts little by little, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, walking as an apprentice with Jesus Christ, learning from him little by little by the power of the Spirit. I'm going to ask Robert and the rest of the team to come out here as we sing together. And with this to end, that in order to do this, in order to repent, and repentance isn't a one-time thing. Levi didn't stop repenting when he left his tax booth. This is an ongoing thing. The lies that the devil tells us, the lies that we tell ourselves, constantly repenting from the way that the world Our flesh and the devil want to shape us and to shape how we think. And constantly retaking up the yoke of Jesus. What does Jesus say about you? Well, to know that, you've got to spend time with Jesus. You've got to spend time in his word, in the presence of Jesus. Bible open, hard receptive, saying, Jesus, what are you going to do with me today? To do this, you must be compelled by a better person. And perhaps for some of you, that starts right now. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, who is present right now today among his people and all those who seek by the the presence of the Holy Spirit, offering to anyone at all times for thousands of years the same invitation. I know you've been through a lot, and I know you don't have it all together. But that's the perfect kind of substance that a person like me can use to turn ashes into beauty. You're just the kind of person that I would love to make into something new. And you don't even have to do anything. I'm the person that does all things and does all things well. You just got to look my way, be compelled, change your mind and follow me. And we'll do it together power of the Holy Spirit. If you've never made that decision before in your life, you can do that today. There's no incantations or mantras or five-point checklists. All you got to do is say, I believe, and I believe enough to follow you. Let's start this a day at a time. You might have been doing this for 20 years. Maybe you fell off the wagon last Monday. Do it again. Say, Jesus, 
I bless God that you have not treated me according to what my sins have deserved. Even though I've fallen off the wagon, you've not left my side. Pick me up, Lord. Grab me by the hand. Hoist me up. I want to keep following you. Take on his yoke and experience the ease and the lightness of what it truly means to be captivated by Jesus. Let your healing begin. Heavenly Father, let your will be done in our hearts, in our lives, in our relationships, in our families, in our city, as it is in heaven. May people here in this room and all over Santa Barbara begin to see the beauty of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your name.